Okay, chronological life of Jesus. We're going to start reading in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And the passages that we're going to read today are recorded in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all the different, all those three uh, um, synoptic gospels. And, uh, but today we're going to focus in on, on, uh, on Mark. And in, in Mark chapter 10, verse 13, we're going to, talk, we're going to see uh, Jesus dealing with children. Mark 10, verse 13. And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant, and he said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms, and he began blessing them and laying his hands on them. So in verse 13, it it says that they were bringing children to him, so that he might touch them. It's interesting that they weren't bringing children to him to be baptized by him. In fact, we have no evidence of, of uh, a child being baptized in the Bible because the Bible sp- speaks about we believe and we be baptized. So there has to be an understanding if we're going to follow the scriptural norm in this. And uh, uh, so they weren't bringing children to him to be baptized. Now, some will make the argument that whole households were baptized, therefore the children must have been baptized. And that's if you assume that there were, number one, children in the, in the household, and number two, that when it said the whole household, it included the children in that. But there's no indication, because the Scriptures clearly tell us that baptism is something that should come after belief and acceptance in Jesus. So that if you were baptized as a child and unknowing to you, then you might want to consider baptism again so that you can believe and be baptized. And then once you're baptized after belief, you're good to go. You don't have to do it again. But if you're a believer and you've not been baptized, uh, it's according to the Scripture, you're walking in disobedience because the Scripture has, has called us to be baptized. Jesus himself was baptized. And the Scriptures call us to be baptized. So that's something you want to do. They were bringing the children to him that he might touch them, and he started blessing them. So here, get, get this picture. He's, they're bringing children to him. It says, but when Jesus, uh, uh, but the disciples rebuked them, in verse 13. So, you know, imagine how the disciples feel. Here is this holy man that, that they, the, they're, they're kind of working with, and, and people sometimes need to go through them, because, you know, they're, they're the crowd control around, around Jesus. And people start bringing kids, and kids come to him for baptism, and they're like, hey, 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 you kids, get out of here. <laughs> He's too busy for you. And, and it reminds me, when I was in India in, in the late 90s, this was before India really had this resurgence of, uh, of uh, development. And I was a speaker there, and, and in this, this group of about 5,000 young people, and, the, and the, as I was going down the street, all these people started coming around me, and the people who had invited me, they weren't just saying, hey, hey, keep back. They were actually pushing people away. And it was just interesting to see. I thought, I, I really felt bad that they were doing this, you know, because I, I didn't mind meeting people. And so here they're trying to control the crowd, and they're thinking, you know, Jesus is just too busy for kids. It says in verse 14, but when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. 
And he said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So he says, it says he was indignant. That means, that means you get upset about some unrighteous act being done. And, and uh, uh, Jesus felt that this was very wrong of his disciples to do. He says he was indignant. He says, permit the children to come to me. Don't hinder them. So he starts scolding the disciples and saying, don't hinder the children. Then he says that the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. This is a very profound verse. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So, so if you think about it, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. That Jesus is saying these children are part of the kingdom of God. So they must, it's different because, because not everybody belongs to the kingdom of God. I mean, some people do, some people don't. But he says, these children belong to the kingdom of God. So he looks at children in a very special way. So when a child loses their life, I mean, God looks at them in a very special way, that they are part of the kingdom of God. And he says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and he began blessing them and laying his hands on them. I mean, this is the indication of a, of a real man. He loves children. If you want to be in ministry, you have got to learn to be nice to children. If somebody says, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be... If you meet a minister who's not nice to children, that minister has a problem. This is... It, G, children loved Jesus. Children are really perceptive with human behavior. And if, if, if kids hate a certain adult, there's something going on generally with that adult. He's given them a scowl or something at some point which has frightened that child. Jesus knew how to relate to children, and he loved them, he'd take them in his arms, and he would bless them. That's what he did. And that's why very often you will see in our our services in church where they don't bring children for baptism, they bring all these newborn for blessing. They come and the church prays over them, and the leadership prays over these children, and there's a blessing in that. And and we did it with all of our children. We brought them up to the front of the church, and during these times, and, and they prayed over our children. We wanted to dedicate them to the Lord. This is different than the decision that they're going to have to make at some point in their life then, which came later on, to, to go through the waters of baptism. But Now, now what is the lesson here for us? You know, it, it, it's interesting that, that uh, Jesus became indignant at the way that they were mean to people. When you see Jesus coming against his disciples and reproving them for something, it's generally because his disciples have not been kind and not shown mercy. That's generally where he's, he's reproving his disciples. For that and for lack of faith. There's a verse in James chapter 2, verse 13 that we're going to read. James chapter 2, verse 13. James 2, 13 says, For judgment will be merciless, to the one who has shown no mercy, mercy triumphs over judgment. Judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. You want to be shown no mercy? You want to be shown no mercy in judgment? Show no mercy to others. Judgment will be merciless to him who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I mean, this is as high as you can get. It is much better to err 
on the side of mercy than on the side of judgment. You know, I have some regrets in my life of things that I've said, of things that I've done. I, I don't have any regrets of showing mercy to people. I don't have any regrets of the times where I showed kindness in a situation. I have regrets for times that I did not show kindness. I have regrets for the time that I, that, that I didn't show mercy. That's where my regrets are. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So if you ever get this feeling like, oh, that person was just so mean to me, I, I, I could just never forgive them. Well, just remember this verse. Judgment will be merciless to him who has shown no mercy. Who wants to go into judgment seat before God, before the judgment seat, and be shown no mercy? Nobody. Okay. All right. So nobody wants that. Do you see how we have to show mercy? Mercy triumphs over judgment. It is so much better. Jesus' reproof to them was, would you stop bothering these little kids and stop bothering their parents? They just want to come for a blessing. Later on, we're going to see how he reproves James and John for wanting to call down fire and brimstone upon the Samaritans. And I mean, he's just like, you don't know what kind of spirit you're of. What are you doing? When we show no mercy, there's a good chance that we're treading on dangerous ground. Show mercy. It triumphs over judgment. Okay, let's move on. The next thing that happens chronologically in the life of Jesus that's reported is his interaction with the rich young ruler. This is again reported in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're going to continue on in Mark chapter 10 and look at this. You have to look at all of the three Gospels to figure out that the guy is a rich young ruler. In one of the Gospels it says that he's young. In one of the Gospels it says that he's a ruler. And in all of them, it says that he's rich. So this is how they get the terminology, the rich young ruler. Because as you look at the different reporting of, of the, those three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke report this, that you see the composite that this was a rich young ruler. Okay, in verse 17 of Mark chapter 10. And he was setting out on a journey, and a man ran and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he, and he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all of these from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But at, at these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Okay, so let's start in verse 17. He was setting out on a journey, so he's on his way. Jesus is setting out on a journey, and a man ran to him and knelt before him. So Jesus is already leaving this town. He's on a journey, and a man comes running out of this town. This is a sense of urgency. This is a good thing. If Jesus came through the town and I missed him, I'm going to go chase him down. I mean, I want to do that. 
So this is a good thing. It's this sense of urgency. I've got something that I've got to deal with here. And remember, men in the Middle East don't run. They don't run. Now, maybe a few of them run now because they've started exercising, but as a culture, they don't run. That's why when the prodigal son's father saw him and he ran to the prodigal son, that was telling. That was informative that that a man of his stature is going to run. Children run. Adults don't run in the Middle East. And it says, a man ran to him and knelt before him. This is the posture of submission. We don't see too many people coming to Jesus and kneeling before him. There are a few. But there's not many where it's described this way. This kneeling before Jesus is exactly what we should be doing. If you come before Jesus in the flesh, he comes, he runs to him, and he kneels before him. And remember, this is a rich man, and he's a ruler. He's defined in the other Gospels as being a ruler and a rich and, and, and we see here it says he owns a lot of property. In the other two Gospels it says he's rich. So he is a ruler. Unlike his confrontation with Nicodemus, where it says a ruler of Israel, which meant that, that, that uh, Nicodemus was part of the Sanhedrin, as we, saw, as we see later in that same gospel, that, that here it says he was a ruler. He was probably not on the, on the Sanhedrin, which was 70 men plus the high priest, but he was probably a synagogue ruler, which is a very high position, especially for a young man. So, so this guy was, was head and shoulders above his peers in many ways. And to be rich... In that day, in Israel, meant you were favored by God. To be rich, automatically said you are favored by God. This is how it was in their culture. So this rich man comes running to Jesus and kneeling before him. All of this is good to this point. It's all right. He comes, he's not coming cocky like, hey, you know, I'm rich. So, what's your story? No, he just comes and runs before him. Kneels. And he says, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He says to him, good teacher, this is very unusual. There is nowhere in Jewish writings that you can find in the Old Testament or in extra biblical texts where a person calls another person good. Never in the second person do you hear them calling somebody good. They never in the first person speak of themselves as being good. They never in the second person say to somebody, you are good. The only one that the Jews ever call good is God. They will refer to people in the third person as good. They will say, he's a good man. He is a good man. They'll in the third person refer to people who are good, but not go up to somebody and say that they're good. But this man does it. So, in, again, this is another unusual feature. Number one, he runs. Number two, he kneels down. Number three, he says to him, good teacher. Very unusual to address a person as good. He says, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, this is a great question. How do I get to heaven? Isn't that a, a question that, that, that people have? Okay, how do I do it? How do I get eternal life? The guy's not coming cocky at all. He's running out to meet this guy. You heard Jesus was here. He's gone, and he's just running out of the town to meet him. Falls before him, says, good teacher. This This is a profound greeting. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
Here's Jesus' answer. Verse 18, And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, some people will say, therefore, Jesus was claiming that he was not God and that he was not equal to God. And that's entirely the wrong interpretation. Jesus is using here the Socratic method, which, which Jews used this method long before Socrates. And, and they would ask a question to respond to a question. So a question would be asked, and they'll ask you another question. Go to a rabbi today. Ask him a question. There's a good chance they're going to ask you a question. Using this method, Jesus often used this method, which was a typical rabbinic method. He would answer a question with a question, which leads the, que- the initial questioner to answer their own question. This is a good way of teaching. I don't teach that way. I don't have patience for that. I tell you what you need to know, okay? <laughs> so, but he, so they say to him, Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus never said, hey, I'm not good. Only my father is good. Jesus never said that. He says to him, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. That's his question to him. Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. So the answer to that would be, I call you good because you are good. I call you good because only God is good. And you are God. If a person is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, he is good. This is God coming. The Messiah coming in the flesh. Do you see how he's leading him to answer his own question? Where is salvation? How do you get eternal life? Accepting Jesus as the Messiah, recognizing that He is God come in the flesh, He is good. Jesus is helping this guy out. The guy did everything right. Runs to meet Jesus, falls down on his knees, and calls Him, Good teacher, what must I do? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? What better question? Could there be a better thing that you ask of the Lord? I mean, this is the perfect thing. So Jesus said, Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know what the man answered him? Nothing. There was no answer. There was no answer. Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. It might have been that Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? And stop there. No answer. Jesus then says, No one is good except God alone. He's trying to draw it out of this guy. Why do you call me good? If the guy answered Jesus' question, he would have ended up answering his own question. How you get eternal life. And again, Jesus is prompting him, No one's good except God alone. Get it? Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. And no response. You know, as a professor, I've seen this. Sometimes you you prime them and you... I just went through it. 
I just told you. Then I say, don't look back in your notes from the beginning of the lecture. And then everybody looks back in their notes and they find the answer. This is what Jesus is doing. He's setting the guy up to answer his own question. And finally, the guy doesn't answer. The guy won't answer him. So Jesus takes him right back to the law. Okay, you want, you want to deal with the law? Let's deal with that. <clears throat> so he says in, in, in uh, verse 19, Verse 19, he says to him, You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. So Jesus quotes to him commandments 6 through 10 of the Ten Commandments. Uh, 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 yeah. so, so he quotes to him six, I'm, I'm sorry, he quotes to him uh, uh, six of the Ten Commandments. So there's six commandments listed here. So the first four Jesus doesn't quote. He only lists to him four of the commandments. And you see, Jesus didn't quote the entire thing. He just paraphrased the commandments. You go back, you read in Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. Jesus paraphrased it. So he, he, he says, uh, um, uh, for example, it says, Honor your father and mother and you shall live long on the earth. So that, that's the commandment. Jesus paraphrased those, those six commandments. So commandments uh, 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 five, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. Five through ten. He, he, he does this. So now what, is, what does he do? So, so one through four he didn't cite. He just cited the ones six through ten. What's the one six through ten? The one six through ten have to deal with a man's response to another man, our human interaction. One through four are responses to God. So let, let me uh, let me read that for you. In Exodus chapter twenty, if, if I look at the Ten Commandments, Commandments one say, says, "You shall have no other gods before me." This is Exodus twenty verse three. That's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. You, the second is, "You shall make." You shall not make for yourself an idol, any likeness of what is in heaven above, or earth beneath, or water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love and kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. The third is, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. And the fourth is, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, and he rested on the Sabbath day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So, you see, those are the first four commandments. It deals with a man's response to God, a man's honoring of his, his uh, relationship with God on the Sabbath day and honoring how he's going to speak about God. But Jesus just speaks to him his interaction with other people. And he summarizes this, and in fact, he inverted two of them, but this inversion of two of them is common in, 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 uh, uh, in Jewish writings. So in verse 20, and he said to him, so the rich young ruler says to him, Teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. So Jesus quotes to him only the ones that interact one man with another. 
And this guy looks at him and says, I've kept all of those since I was a young man. Since I was a youth, I've kept all of those. And Jesus doesn't contest with him and say, uh-oh, I cut you. No, he doesn't. Jesus doesn't contest with this guy. This was a good guy. If in your dealings with him, he was honest. In your dealings with him, he was not a crumb. And there were people all around, too, where this man, you know, there's crowds around Jesus. No one is contesting when this guy says this. They just say, oh, no, 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 not this guy. Nobody's contesting. In all his human interactions, he was a good guy. So could it be that good guys don't automatically know what eternal life is? Just because you're good doesn't get you into heaven. You see what Jesus is underscoring here for us? Just because you're a good guy. Granted, you're a good guy in all your dealings with people. You're a good guy. You're an honest guy. Has anybody ever told you that? You know, I, look, I know this guy. He's not a Christian, and he's a good guy. He's honest. He pays his taxes. He's a good father. He's a good husband. He's good to his children. You're telling me that he's not going to heaven? Here's a guy. I mean, this is your man. This is your man right here. And he's not mocking God. He respects God. I mean, this is as good as you can get. And he's a synagogue ruler, which means that he's active in the church. You know, he does what he's supposed to do. He's a good man. He says, I've done all this from my youth up. Verse 21. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. I mean, imagine that. How often do you see this? Says Jesus just looked at this guy. And boom, his love is just going out to this guy. Can you imagine how this would melt a person? That Jesus would look at you and just his love is coming to you? This is the way he looked at this guy. He loves him. Jesus loves these individuals who are really good people, who do the right thing, that are good husbands and good fathers and good people in the community. He looks at them and he loves them. He's not opposed to them. He loves them. But remember the man's question, how do I get eternal life? And Jesus didn't say, look, you've done all these things. You're a good guy. You're good to go. You're good to go. You know, you're all set. No problem. No problem. You're a good man. He didn't do that. He didn't say that. He's leading this guy to eternal life. He looked at him. Looking at him, Jesus felt the love for him in verse 22 and said to him, One thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Remember, Jesus never dealt with him the first four commandments that deal with your interactions with God. How you look at God, how you deal with God, that God comes first in your life before anything else. You shall have no idols, and that idol might be money. So for this man, his idol was his money, it says. But these words, but at these words he was saddened and he went away grieving. I mean, look at the picture of this man. Jesus says this and the man is like, you know, just his whole, he's saddened. And he goes away just grieving, 
just with his face in his hands, just grieving. This is the way he goes away after meeting the Messiah. For he owned much property. Jesus just zeroed right in on exactly what was keeping him. Because Jesus said the most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And the second most important is to love your neighbor as yourself. He's already done the second. It's the first one he's got a problem with. You shall love the Lord your God with all your strength, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And Jesus added, in fact, in the New Testament, he added your mind. In the Old Testament, it doesn't add mind. Jesus added mind. So he gets right at at, at what's up here. He wants everything. That's what this man was lacking. And you say, therefore, everybody should sell all their possessions and give it to the poor. No, he said it to this man. This won't do you any good unless money is the thing that keeps you from God. This won't do you any good. If it were the thing that we were supposed to do, the New Testament in the Apostles' teachings would have commanded us to do it. But what does he say to rich people? Be generous. And remember, your money is not your security. Your security is in God. He told Timothy, you tell the rich people in your church, be generous. And in that way, you store up riches. I want rich people in the church not to give away all their money. I want them to stay rich and to learn to give keep giving. If they give away all their money and all their assets, there's nothing left to give. And the people they give it to will pilfer it anyway because people who've never had anything don't know how to deal with money and that's why when people win the lottery they just go berserk and it destroys their life. Rich people who have all that money already, you don't see them going berserk because they've learned to live with it. You want rich people to stay rich and keep being generous with their money. That's what the New Testament commands. It says in the early church in Jerusalem, the people sold everything and they gave everything away. And what happened to the church in Jerusalem? The book of Acts is not instructing us. It is an historical book. The church of Jerusalem became impoverished after a few years. Impoverished. And Paul would have to go to the Gentile churches and get offerings and bring it down to the church in Jerusalem. It didn't work. It's not taking from the rich and dispersing it to the poor that brings the poor up and makes everybody equal. It doesn't work that way. The Bible never teaches that. I know people teach that all the time as if that's the right thing. That doesn't work. The rich are to continue to be generous. He told this man, though, you got a problem. And the problem that you have is your money. You go take and you get rid of everything. And then look what he says. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Look at this. Jesus said to this man, follow me. That's the same thing he said to Matthew, the tax gatherer who was at the table collecting money. He says, he looked at him, he said, follow me. This is the same thing that he said to Peter and Andrew. He said, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. He didn't say to them, sell your fishing boat so you can never go back. He didn't. We know they still had their fishing boat because remember, after Jesus was crucified, He rose from the dead, the disciples were confused. They went fishing. If they had given away their fishing boat, they they couldn't have gone fishing anymore. They went fishing. They still had their nets and everything. And that's when Jesus was on the beach. He said, hey, throw your net on that side of the boat. Peter says, oh, come on. We've been fishing all night. You know, what are you talking about? And then he didn't realize it was the Lord. Remember, he still had his fishing boat. Because for him, the fishing boat wasn't the issue in his life. For this man, the money was the issue. 
But the same call that he gave to the disciples, he gave to this man. How profound is that? This man turned away a call to follow Jesus that was equivalent to the call of the disciples. Jesus really liked this guy. But he went away grieving. What is it? So let's, let's bring this back to us. What is it in our lives that might keep us from loving God with everything we have? I know when the gospel was presented to me, I grew up in a Jewish home. I mean, the big thing is my family. What am I going to do? If I accept the Lord, I mean, what about my family? My cousins, I mean, we're Jewish. I'm a Jew. I mean, how, how can I do this? I mean, family's a good thing, isn't it? But the gospel call is higher. And then after I came, became a believer, I remember dealing with old friends. What do you do with old friends? They're my friends. They're my friends. I had a, I had a good friend named Gordon. And, uh, uh, and Gordon was, um, I remember, even, even after I was a believer that first year, I mean, Gordon, Gordon and I would still hang out together. I didn't like what he did, and I didn't do what he did, but a lot of times I was around him. And it was almost as if I was living vicariously through him, even though I wasn't doing it myself. And then the Lord said, I just spoke to my heart, I need to cut off this relationship. You need to cut off this relationship. And I remember Gordon one day calling me, and I moved into the discipleship house. He said, he said let's go down to New York City. I'll pick you up. He lived in, in Buffalo. I was in school in Syracuse. It was over the summer, so he had gone home to Buffalo. I stayed in Syracuse in this discipleship house. He said, we'll go, go down to New York City. I'll pick you up, and we'll go down there. And I, and I just couldn't do it. And I told him, no, Gordon, I don't want He said, no, I'm picking you up. I'm picking you up. I didn't know how to say no to this guy. And he's with my friend. And then I prayed, Lord, help me. Lord, help me just to break this relationship. And then Gordon didn't show up, I mean, for like hours. Remember, people didn't have cell phones or you couldn't contact people. And, and finally he called. He hit a deer on the way to my home from Buffalo to Syracuse. He hit a deer and his car was totaled. And that was it. And then, you know, and then the Lord really confirmed, okay, I got you, got you out of it this time. But you've got to say no to this guy. And then I only saw him one time after that. He came to my wedding a year later. He came to my wedding. And, uh, and I've never kept contact. Because remember, there was no Facebook. There was no email. You know, you're in a different city. And unless you're going to sit down and, and handwrite a letter to another guy, which is kind of <laughs> funny. You didn't really normally do that too much. Um, you know, we just lost contact. And, and so, so um, uh, but there are things in our life. It might be relationships. It might be a girl you really like or a guy you really like that's a relationship that you know is not a spiritually healthy relationship. This is not easy to give up. This is not some small thing. You can go away grieving and saddened and grieving or you can follow Jesus. There are things that He calls us to that God comes first in our life. He comes before people he comes, in this man's case, it was money. For most of you, that's not the issue right now. It might someday be the issue, but for most of you, that's not the issue. But for some people, it is. But it might be a relationship. What is it that keeps me from loving God with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, all my strength? And Lord, may I give this up for you and follow you.
This is what He calls us to. This is the things that He's calling us to. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word, the truth of it. Thank You, Lord, for all that You have blessed us with in Your Word. Father, I pray that You would cause these young people to err on the side of mercy rather than on the side of judgment. That they would realize that mercy triumphs over judgment. And Father, I pray for these young people that they would see exactly how Jesus is reaching out to them and calling them into a place of full commitment. And Father, if there be relationships, relationships of the opposite sex that are that are holding them back from seeking You fully. Father, draw them back to You. Father, if there be family commitments that are keeping them from following You fully, Father, draw them to You. Father, if there be other issues in their lives, if it be sexual relationships and, and, and the love of sex that is causing, causing them from coming fully to You, Father, I pray that You would cause them to see this and they would grieve and turn to You. And they would follow You. Father, Your mercies be upon them. The mercies and the grace of God be upon them, I pray. Have mercy on these young people. In the name of Jesus, Amen.